He was the ugliest, ugliest little baby I've ever seen. The day he was born, it ended up in an emergency section because his heartbeat dropped. And um, I went in for the section then. And um, they told me then that I couldn't see him because he was downstairs. And I was all confused. I was, why is he downstairs? But he was in the neonatal unit. Um, and they told me that they'll take me down the next morning. And I had to put on the gown and wash the hands. And I was in a wheelchair, actually. And... Um, they pushed me in and I just remember seeing all these very small babies and tubes and things and I was wondering which one is mine and they pushed me to the last incubator and as soon as I saw him I just said no he's not mine I don't want him <laughs> it was just an initial reaction like he couldn't even wear a nappy he was that small and he had tubes coming from everywhere and um, they asked me do you want to hold him and I said no I don't but the nurse took him out and gave him to me and all I could feel was blankets and then the Polaroid came out and it's come on, smile now, mommy, smile, and we take pictures of you. Um, I still don't like to look at those photographs, they're awful. Then the doctor came in and my first reaction was, is he dying? Because I knew a baby, that's not how a child should look. And he said, he's not sure yet. But at this stage, I just handed Tristan back to the nurse and I was pushed off to the ward for, of course, tea and lots of sugar in the tea, you know, to calm me down. Um, so after that, actually, it's a bit of a daze, the last few days after that. I don't remember much. I just went up and down to him all the time and I couldn't breastfeed him. He was tube fed and nobody knew what was wrong. They even tested me for AIDS and everything. <clears throat> he was very small. They could see something was wrong with his eye. Um, it was kind of a bit bigger than the other eye and it was very white. So we knew he was blind in that eye, but they didn't know what caused it. So he went up to Temple Street for a week or so. They um, called me in one night to come in for blood tests. And they confirmed to me then that I had congenital rubella syndrome when I was pregnant. So Tristan is a rubella baby. You hadn't realised you had rubella when you were pregnant? No, actually I was about two months pregnant, not even when I had a, like a bad flu. But um, I remember going home and I slept for three solid days. I don't even remember. Keith was in and out to me and that was it. I, I don't remember anything else. And apparently that was rubella I had. They told me his heart was very, very weak and that we had to christen him in hospital that day. And of course I was crying right through it. I couldn't even hold him, Keith had to hold him. And, um, but we went home one night and we made a decision that we're not going to let him die. And I basically dragged him out of the hospital. They didn't want to send him home because they said I was a young mother and I was emotional. But at this stage I was told he'd, he'd live six months to a year. So of course I was emotional. And I said I've never heard an excuse like that for a child to stay in hospital. So I said if he's going to die, he's gonna die in our arms at home. And he said, OK, I'll send him home with you today. And he went home. He was two months old then. And how was life with Tristan over the first the first few years up until um, school-going age? Mm. It was hard because we were trying to keep him healthy so that we can do other work with him. Therefore, I think we kind of missed a few signs of autism creeping up on us. My name is Marion Phelan. I'm the parent of a six-year-old boy, David, who has been diagnosed as having autism. Um, David received his diagnosis when he was uh, around four years of age, um, even though we'd no known from about 18 months, between 18 months and two years, something was wrong. How did that manifest itself? 
Um, at about 18 months, uh, we noticed David hadn't been progressing the way we wanted him to. Um, his speech was virtually non-existent at the time. His behaviour, I think, was the most um, noticeable feature that something was wrong. He was um, extremely difficult. Um, he had tantrums a lot. He banged his head and things like that. It was around the time my second little son, Mark, was born. And at the time, I suppose not knowing a whole lot about autism or David was our first child about, I suppose, parenting, <laughs> if you like. Uh, we didn't really realise anything was wrong until we took him to see the help board nurse at the time um, who who happened to come in and see my newborn child, Mark, um, uh, just on the regular visit. And um, I mentioned that David, you know, we had concerns about David. And so we had him assessed at the time and the assessments then began... Um, I think, uh, thinking back now, it's, it seems so long ago, the assessments seemed to... You know, we'd have him reassessed and reassessed and this sort of went on for a while. And I suppose we listened really, we listened for quite a while until we decided ourselves, like, this has gone beyond a joke. We need a diagnosis. We need to know what what he has. We need to know where we're going and we need to know how to help him. So um, we looked up all sorts of, we looked up all sorts of conditions on the Internet and, and read up on ADHD and autism and everything we could find in that category that we thought might fit David's profile ourselves. So eventually I got hold of a checklist where, where um, I read the first page on it and realised that maybe out of a 10-point plan, David would have, 8 out of the 10 points would have applied to David. He was very small when this um, laughing for no reason started, this hysterical laughter. He was still sleeping in a cot and um, I remember picking him up one night and his eyes rolled back in his head and he was kind of flapping his hands in front of him. And I thought maybe there's, um, it could be a, a seizure or epilepsy or something. So we had an EEG done and um, it came up that there was nothing wrong. He never liked to be picked up or held at all. He never liked to play with toys. Um, I put that down maybe to the, the blindness in the one eye. We weren't sure how much vision he had in his other eye. He had very poor eye contact. He wasn't interested in things around him. Um, he was kind of switched off, I felt, from the world. Um, he was my first baby, but I did know that just wasn't right. So we did start to get concerned about Tristan. Um, he was starting to reject his hearing aids. Head banging started. He was playing with stones. He was walking around with sticks in his hands all the time. He would laugh or cry for no reason. Um, we hardly slept at night. I remember dropping him to school one day saying he's awake 30-something hours now, non-stop. Um, little did I know it was his diet that was influencing him that way. But um, it was around that time then we started reading up and looking more. And um, we requested to get more speech therapy. And we drove up to the CRC in Dublin for speech therapy every week. And the speech therapist there, we got on very well with her and we would um, tell her we were quite concerned about Tristan. Um, at this stage, Clodagh was born, actually, as well. Um, he never took notice of his sister when she was born until she started walking, actually. Um, so it was then she told us one day that um, she has worked with Tr Tristan, uh, with children with autism in England for five years and that she sees autism in Tristan. And myself and Keith drove home going, what is autism? And I went, I think it's the children who don't smile or show emotion. <laughs> Little did I know. So that night I looked it up on the internet and um, everything I read described Tristan. So 
we just both I remember sat down in the kitchen and started crying and said this sounds it sounds like a lot and um, three weeks later he was diagnosed with severe autism in the CRC um, so I thought right it, it came really as a relief that right we've finally got something now now we can do something about it so that was my first shock and my second one was when I turned around and, and wanted to know right where do I go now what do I do and I really was told I don't know literally there wasn't anything there that I was you know we can maybe try this we can put him in here we can try this And but I like looking back looking back um, I was told as well that he was mild which I I'm quite angry about now at this stage and I, I felt you know we went home and we discussed it and, and like I remember sitting with Pat at home and, and saying to him well look it's fine he's mild he's going to grow out of it in a few years and you know his behaviour will get better and his speech will come on and, and but like it, it, if I was to just sit back and let that happen it would be now where he was then instead of where he is now so um, so then I suppose it came to placing him where he you know would receive some sort of education and we placed him in um, a national school that had uh, a unit onto the side of speci- specifically for children with autism and we decided right we'll give this a try and see how it goes but um, after a year in the unit while I felt they were exceptionally good to David in the unit and worked exceptionally well with what they had I just didn't feel they had the backup services of someone professional or someone that was used to dealing with this um, condition I mean I I didn't want a place where I could send David to school in the day and he went out the door with autism and he still came back home with autism now I'm not saying I wanted him cured overnight but um, I wanted to, I wanted knowledge for at home I wanted to know how to handle him at home I wanted to know how to make our lives better at home his life better at home it wasn't it was never about us myself and my husband we didn't we had David David present with what he had and that was it he was our child we loved him unconditionally no matter what he had and we just wanted the best for him and how to help him but I just felt that you know I didn't have the knowledge I didn't have the know-how and it was really trial and error He went into the Sacred Heart Centre in Waterford but um, he was in there for two years and it was while he was there I noticed that his behaviour was getting worse instead of getting better Um, I didn't know what it was It's a good place but it's not a place for children with autism and the staff are not trained to deal with children with autism they might deal with cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or in those areas more with the, with the autism was quite bad behaviour for Tristan he would head bang he would he was um, hard to handle so and they just didn't know how to handle him they didn't know how to handle him no um, in fact they weren't even sure that he should stay on there that it was the appropriate school so at that stage we tried to integrate him into a Montessori school two mornings a week which really was one of the worst things was probably because in Montessori he was allowed to go and pick whichever toys he wanted to play with and of course he wouldn't put it back that was usually a problem but Tristan was kind of left on his own where a child with autism you don't want them to spend time in their own world all the time you want to bring them back to your world so that wasn't appropriate either You have from early days decided to really take this on and learn everything you can learn about it Yes, yes We said I said to Keith as well that um, I was working like in retail or I was working as a waitress and I said to him then when Tristan was around two I said to him I'm going to stop working and now try and concentrate on Tristan to get him where we want him because we didn't just say he's not going to die we also said we want to integrate him into society again one day and that's really our aim 
is to hopefully give him some kind of a life that he can cope in some way in his on his own somewhere. But um, two months after his diagnosis, we said we were going to go back to Cape Town for a holiday. And um, <clears throat> my mother heard somebody talk on the radio over there who does programs for children with autism. And then one night she was at a dinner where um, there was a psychologist sitting who used to be a principal of a school for children with autism. And he said to her, if I want to go and talk to him just about how I feel, to contact him. So when I was over, I rang him and he said to bring Tristan as well. Um, that assessment took three hours. It was the longer, longest, most thorough assessment anyone has ever done. And he put us in contact with Annelise, who's our program director. Um, we went to her two days later and for the first time we felt somebody was interested in the child. She doesn't just look at the behavioural side, also at the dietary side um, and how to live with, this, with these children, not just to send them to a school, pick them up in the afternoon and go home. It's basically a 24-hour day um, programme, I guess you can say. And it, there was nothing like this available to you in Ireland? No, I couldn't find anything that I was happy with and especially with his deafness as well. We found it, just, it just made it that little bit harder. Um, so we did start the program like three days after we saw her. And within the first week, Tristan um, had 150 signs. This was in Cape Town when in you were just Cape there yeah. on your holidays. And within yeah. a week, he had 150 signs. He had 150 signs. The eye contact got better because we started taking him off gluten and casein. Of course, he had with bad withdrawal symptoms from it. It was like a drug addict. He had bad withdrawal symptoms and um, we just kept working. And actually, I, I realized he was quite hungry to learn at this stage because he was four and a half, almost five, when we started the program. So he's had no input all those years. Whatever we did wasn't enough or he didn't go in because he switched off. And um, I learned how to control my child because I was afraid of him, even at that age. And for the first time, I was in control of him. And that felt good. And that made him feel safer, too, I think. I got more positive knowing I can go home now with a child I can manage. So I started training while I was there for a month. Um, Keith came home with Cloda and um, I started working with Tristan as his tutor in South Africa. And then we came home and Keith had a classroom set up for me and I started working. And I realised then that if I don't do something about it myself, no one else will. And I could, because I could see all these differences in the child, I knew there's potential there. But we just had to get it out the right way. And I would send back videos of myself working with Tristan and she would send me back an email correcting what was wrong or praising what was right, whatever. And I remember saying to her, I'm going to make sure there will be a video one day that you can see nothing wrong in. That was my aim. Um, besides that, she would be on the phone regularly um, and we, ke we kept in contact that way. So you trained a tutor to work with him as well? We did, yeah. We trained a tutor who worked with him. It was hard to be in my own house all day tutoring him and then I didn't get out at all. And I could feel I was starting to burn out at this stage. Um, so two months later, we decided we'll look for a tutor to work with Tristan and that I would still be there all the time too. But it just gave me a bit of more free time since I had Claude as well. And I didn't want her to feel neglected by it all. And what happened from there? Um, from there on, we were at a meeting one night in Waterford City um, for parents with children with autism. And people started getting interested in our programme because for the, at this stage it was running for about six months and it was quite a big success. And a few parents um, were interested in opening a school because they couldn't get the right services either for their children. And then um, they started to look at us, at our programme. So I gave them all information and it basically started from that then. 
four of us um, opened the school then in September last year with Annalise came over and she visits regularly and um, at the moment we're actually looking at getting a principal from South Africa who has worked with Annalise and knows her program to come over and take over from from the rest of us because we're just parents in the school full-time and we have to do fundraising as well so you need somebody professional there full-time to move on things because you do get stuck Classroom. We've decided on the, the green that's on the walls because Annalise, the program director, um, liked the color green. It has come some kind of soothing effect on the children, and it's easier to learn with. Um, yeah, basically, we have separate units for each child, um, with a little de- desk inside, and everything is in reach for what they need for the next activity. And then there's other things around the classroom that the children can get up and go and get themselves, like the bookshelf there, the little shop unit there. We also have a blackboard then where they would do some writing with chalk or with the water and the paintbrush on the blackboard. So usually we'll try and do an activity like writing on paper or in shaving foam and follow it up directly by writing on the blackboard then, so kind of keep it together. They also have some sunflowers and beans and carrots that they're growing themselves and they have to mind it and water it every day and they can see them. We also have a little TV there for, um, for when we're training or whatever, we can watch it. We have a stereo there for, even during gym time, we might put on some nice music for them, um, children's rhymes and things, or sometimes we put on some classical music, which is nice and soothing for when they're doing certain activities. Um, We also use it for sound lotto, where you have the sound of an animal, or any household signs, outdoor signs, and they have to match the little pictures. And um, That's basically it. In there, then, is our little office, where um, it's going to be turned into a room for the children now. We have a bench there for the computers, and we'll put some bean bags and books in there, which is a timeout room for them if they need to just go and be quiet somewhere. And we're getting a little office just right beside it for our things that will be kind of separate from the kids. No noise, no phone will be ringing in their ears. And that's really it. This is Maureen and Mike. What's that, Mike? It's bubbles. Bubbles. blowing. Mike doesn't speak, but he can hear everything. But there's a vast improvement in him because he's starting to make lots of sounds and he's really settled in and the structure really suits him. Um, And making great friends, the interaction with the other children is really, really good because he wouldn't have um, normally been uh, interacting and everything now. So they go to another and they play. How long have you been working at this? Since September. I started um, with Annalise um, when she opened up in September. So it's great. I'm really enjoying it. Have you worked in this area before or is this completely new to you? This is completely new to me. Yeah, completely new. Um, I always uh, worked in accounts. Accounts? Yeah, so this is a complete change altogether. But uh, it was like coming home when I started the job, you know. Hi. Hi. David's Hi, Lorraine. Children. This is David, my little, my little man. <laughs> and it defeats. <laughs> and give some medicine. Oh, boy, good to read it all again. All together. And it defeats. Draw the fan. Two, three, two, three. 
and give some medicine. Good boy. Famia. That's a long words in there. That's a long words there. David has. Um, he has a good knowledge of single words, and what we're trying to do is just get him to sentence build and get the spontaneous speech out of him now. He had a lot of single words when he started. You know, when, when you... Some people sort of feel, because a child has words, that they speak, but, I mean, unless this, the language is functional and they can use it to communicate properly, it really... All the words in the world really don't make a difference. And again, it, like it would... It's down to, again, the programme being... Um, and I put it, the programme being so varied and brought into the home that you have to you have to do this work at home as well. Um, you know, there's not much point in him learning what he's learning at school if you can't take it back home and, and implement it all around and generalise what he's learning. But he's happy and he's, you seem to enjoy it too, Lorraine, by the looks of things. Yeah, I do now. It was hard when I first started, to be honest. I didn't have I didn't really know what to expect coming into it. I'd never done any of this kind of work. Um, you know, when, you, when he does something small, it just makes it so, like, you just feel over the moon, like, you know, it's so brilliant, like, but, uh, the first picture he ever coloured in properly, you know, it was just, oh my God. Like, yeah, he couldn't, he, he literally couldn't hold a pen when he started here, he, he'd hold a pen, but he wouldn't, had no interest, he, he'd fight if you tried to get him to colour, he'd, and like, he just, he's, through just perseverance and getting him to use the pen every day and, and constant repetition and practice, he drew, he coloured in his first picture then in, in January of this year. Um, he'll write the le- he'll write the alphabet A to Z. Some of the letters are a bit. He did that himself yesterday on his own. I know you can't see it. The word tomato. And just while the girls were they were doing an art, um, art and craft session with them, and he just took a piece of paper and wrote the word tomato on it. And you know that was it's great to see things like that coming out. Like you know. And I see you you have it laminated. So oh, yeah. these are obviously proud <laughs> proud proud extremely moments. Extremely proud. Extremely proud of anything he achieves. But uh, he's worked very hard, and he's 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 a happy little boy. Like he's he's so much happier now than he was a year, two years ago. And Joanne, you're Tristan's tutor. I'm some work experience. Yeah, I've been here since March, and I'm finishing in September. I'm going back to college full time, so I don't really want to leave, but I have to go back. <laughs> and what would your day, your average day with Tristan, what would be involved? We haven't. Um, program set out and we kind of work from that what he's really like if some days he just wants to kind of do more arty stuff and we colour paint and then he does sums and um, he loves reading well looks loves looking at books so we read to him and let him sign words back to us from looking at the books and um, then we have gym time which they just um, do their gross motor skills and stuff like that and then lunch after that then we kind of have a group activity where all the kids get together and do an activity together just so they get used to with the, playing with the other kids and um, then usually throughout the window and <laughs> getting out of the seatbelt Joanne travels in and out with me every day so it's a help when Tristan gets upset in the back of the car like she can just crawl over to him and help out and and hold him in. <laughs> yeah, and she usually comes home in the afternoon with me just for a little while, have a cup of tea or whatever, but at least she's there just to help a little bit because he gets on great with Joanne. Can you open it? Say, Mummy, open it. Open it. Oh, <laughs> Open it. Mummy, silly. Say, open it. Ooh, it's a dress. 
he likes this. It's kind of cut out um, dolls like we used to have in uh, magazines. Yeah. He loves it, and then we're trying to teach him, you know, it's cold outside, what will she wear, to put on warm clothes and not shorts and T-shirt and talk about the seasons that way as well. And how's his fashion sense? Mm-hmm. It's very good, actually. He dresses him a bit like his sister Clodagh, yeah. doesn't he? And do you put on the blue or the purple? Um, does Tristan have any words at all? None at all. He would just make um, noises and sounds, kind of loud... High-pitched noises, as Cloda said the other day. Tristan can't talk, but he's screaming in my ear. She said, I don't like it. <laughs> Cloda's Tristan's sister, little yeah, sister. She's three now, yeah. So she's well aware of, of the situation. She'd say to me, um, Tristan can't talk because he's deaf. And he, mommy needs to help him a little bit more. So she understands that. And she's, she's quite, um, she's like a little mother with him. She yeah. minds him. She rubs his back when he's upset. She's... Um, She's kissing him and she'd say to me, I like him, mommy, I like him. And yeah, she really minds him and she signs to him as well. I find she signs more when we're not in the room. Yeah. And he's now starting to, he asked her for a drink the other night, he signed to her for a drink. And she came in and asked me for a drink then. And one day they were, he was trying to steal sweets, I think, and I said no. And I walked out and I peeked back in and he was um, pulling her by the hand, signing sweet to her to climb up on the press. <laughs> <laughs> so there's now a connection starting there, which is good as yeah. well. And she did climb up for him. <laughs> They're getting into mystery together, which is nice now. That's yeah. lovely. Yeah, there's a relationship starting now. Ooh, another dress. dress. I'm Annelies van Rijswijk from South Africa. I'm here in Ireland to help the children from the Jonah Project who are on my SNAP program, which was developed in South Africa. I worked at the school for autistic children in South Africa, and uh, the school was full. The children had to wait a year to get into the school. And then uh, I said to the principal, I'll take the children on a home program. So by the time that they get into the school, they had something going and they didn't lose a year. Results were amazing. While I was doing these home programs with the parents, one of the uh, children that I started with, uh, within two years after starting with him, he was mainstreamed. And uh, last year he did his uh, final year at school. And uh, more of the children that we worked with, if you see that the child had the potential, we started to mainstream the child with mainstream children instead of keeping them in this special school and that brought the results along so when I start I fell at school and hurt my back and then I was boarded uh, medically unfit and I went home and I stood behind the gates and I thought now what could I do because I loved my job and I thought okay I can still help people with my mouth and then I started getting people referred to me for help so that is why I started with the SNAP program there so you were taking what you had learned in school and following your own instincts, really. And studying further, going to courses and so on, and in that way. And the results were there the whole time, that the children were improving so much. I worked together with schools. We work one-on-one for a while with the child. And then as soon as the language starts to improve and the behavior, then I phase them back into a mainstream little play school and then we tutor in the afternoons and they go to school in the mornings, depending on how the child develops. And that is how it's been going for all these years now. 50% of the children are mainstream in mainstream schools, some with facilitators 
and others on their own independently. For a lot of parents of autistic children, they can be very, very difficult to handle and very difficult in social situations. That is the most difficult part of autism. It's the sudden resistance to change. Uh, There was a little boy who had no speech and severe difficult behaviour. His mother came to me and she said, now you can have him, and she drove off. (laughs) Because the OT couldn't do anything with the speech therapist, nobody could do anything. And six months later, he stepped into my front door and he said, it's a door. I said, yes, six months ago you stepped through here, you didn't know it was a door. The other one came and said, oh, look at the half circle in the sky. And he was looking at a rainbow. Now suddenly he's totally aware. He walks past the box and he will say, what's in there? A totally appropriate question for any normal child to ask who's curious about something. And he is doing so extremely well. He's been retested by the psychologist and she said, well, he's off the spectrum. Which doesn't mean that there isn't any work left with a child like that. We still have him and we'll still work with him for about two years. But yes, he's slotting into a mainstream school and he is lovable and they can handle him at home and he's behaving in shops and he's interested in the world around him and he's talking. He still needs a strict diet and when he's not on that diet and he eats something wrong, the behavior goes down. But we know that now, so we can immediately pinpoint it back to his behavior that he has eaten something wrong. For that mother who dropped dropped him to you that day and said, here, take him, obviously at her wit's end, um, it must be an enormously gratifying thing to see your child really transformed, given back to you as one of one of the mothers described to me. It is. And it's a wonderful feeling when you... That's why I, th- I said I can help parents with my mouth. Because just to change the quality of life for the parents and then for the child itself. I've got a mom who's now living in New Zealand and the child is now eight years old and he gels his hair and he's cool she said, I hardly ever think of autism. So he is just growing up as a normal little boy now, and he was two years with no speech, screaming when we put him down on a chair to start working, and there he is now doing so well. And all the reports I get back from her is that he is just doing well and she's just happy and grateful for what we've done. In a way, um, when we hear the word autism, we think of a lifelong problem, affliction, whatever way you want to describe it. But what you're describing is a program that can essentially cure or develop a child to a point where they can have a relatively normal life for themselves and the family. Yeah, it's not a cure, it's hard work. If you are prepared to put in a few years of hard work, you get your life back. But then the development of the child, I cannot predict. I can just see as it goes along, and then we see where we get with the child. And for yourself, it must become almost a way of life. It's not something that can be a nine-to-five job, is it? No, it's not. I oversee all the programs. Then I go home, and then I phone everybody how the rest have gone through the day, and then I've got to fax through to those who are far away, and I've got to still read what is coming on Internet. and so on. Yeah, so it's a lot of work. It's not from nine to five. What would be the uh, average length of day for you? I usually go to bed at twelve, one o'clock at night, and I get up at seven o'clock in the mornings. 
and it's pretty much work all the way. All the way, yeah. Talk to me about some of the special moments over the years that you've been working on the programme. There are many. Uh, there's one girl who came to me, she was five years old, and she was sent out of this school and that school, so eventually she came to our school. And her mother said to me that you reached out to my child. That is the one thing that she found wonderful. Uh, that a child will come and say, um, I love you. Or that you say something to the child and he looks at you and he's aware of what you're saying and he'll go and do it after you've been trying and trying to get him to do it. I had one child, I sat for nine months, give me plate and I'll show my plate and he'll give me the plate. He had severe language problems and I'll say, give me knife and I had to show my knife and I get a knife. And after nine months I said, without cooing, give me knife and he gave me the knife and the plate. And out of that, this child improved so much that he could go from the school for autism to a school for mentally handicapped children to learn a trade that he could go in a sheltered workshop later. That is enormous improvement for that child. Those little things. And then, yes, my little boy who was just a little blob looking at the sun, playing with books. He's nine years old now, and he was two years and two months when we started with him. The mother said to me, why must I force my child to do everything that the other one learns spontaneously? The dad turned around and said, they're not the same. He's nine years old in the school, mainstream school now. He got the academic award. And the whole school gave him a standing evasion. That is wonderful. The other one, two of them now, who got their final certificates in school. And that little boy also got a standing ovation by the school, the school committee. Everybody got up and gave him a standing ovation. And he's in our, not university, but Technicon in our country. And he's doing uh, accountancy there. That was the child who couldn't speak. And he would tantrum if his chair wasn't square on a block. And there we, that is very rewarding. And do you see the SNAP program continuing on it expanding into other countries? Do you think that way at all? Yes. I, when I stood behind the gate and thought, what was I going to do, I wrote a mission statement for myself. And I said to help people in South Africa and across the borders. And I have 18 countries with children in now. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, just, it's just rewarding. I even have a little girl that I helped from St. Helena Island. Yeah, and there you can only come to South Africa or England by boat. You can't reach this island by plane. So the mother came down to Cape Town and I helped her for a week. And she went back and then she emailed me. She's starting to say more and more words and she's just improving. Each child has their own tutor. We get tutors allowance from the government, a tu uh, home tuition grant, it's called. And we use that to pay for the tutors. But the actual school, the programme manager, the running of the school... Um, any costs other than that it's just fundraising and has been fundraising from the start we've had huge support from the people of Waterford and, and the county of Waterford and 
we we just we'll come up with an event and like everybody gets on board. Oh God, we've had we've had just too many to mention. We it's it, like it takes the pressure off us to do that because we our fundraising is usually on a weekend time and like when you're in school all week and you're away, away maybe from other children in the house, you're giving up that time to have to go and do that. And like you have to do it. It's it's just it came up and it has to be done and and the school has to be funded and it has to be paid for, and like. To date, we've been very lucky, um, and I hope I just hope it continues on until maybe someday or someday soon. Hopefully, we'll hopefully be funded by the government, and you know. But like again, that's another area that I suppose I'm I was angry about at the beginning, and and I I just assumed when you have a child that has a difficulty or a, a learning difficulty or a, a special need because they're classed as special needs, and by the very definition, they have special needs. Um, you just imagine funding is there from the services are there from and it's just not when you see money being spent on all kinds of rubbish like I mean you open the paper every day and you, you see things like 62,000 being spent on chocolates for the jet and 52,000 being spent on makeup for politicians and things like that like you just it angers me it really angers me as a parent to see money like that being spent when there's children in our country that need help and I really didn't want to go into this area but what are they doing about it they should put their money where their mouths are really is how I feel and, and like I get angry I'm getting angry now and I was even starting to talk about it so I'll stop but like you just feel these children need more than they're getting and it should be there for them I mean you, you look in the states I've read books these children are diagnosed and like they just go and they get educational psychologists and they get speech therapists and they get occupational therapists and they're there they're just there and it should be the same here it really should and um but it's not so that's why we're where we are and that's why we're setting up the programme and that's why we've been running it and, and um, we're putting the work in and we're, we're seeing the results Well Tristan today compared to Tristan a few years ago as I say he was just an oxygen thief basically he, he was just there um, at the moment Tristan is communicating um, he's starting to interact with his sister he's more aware of his surroundings he's um, I have my child back basically most probably never the way um, you have a normal child, so to speak, but I have my child back and I can live with him for a change. Our plan for the future is basically a, our aim is to get Tristan into an appropriate school because I want to mainstream him, but we're stuck there because of his autism and deafness. So we either need a school for children with autism where he can get somebody who can work on the deafness or he needs a deaf school where somebody can work on the behavioural part. So we're a bit stuck at the moment. But um, I am looking into that and um, we're willing to um, pack up and immigrate to go to an appropriate school um, because it's it might sound awful because I know I have Claude as well, but it will make life easier for the rest of us. At this stage, I would like to just be mummy as well and hand over to somebody else. Yeah, I'd still be involved very much so in what's happening, but um, I just want to be mummy and not tutor as well and like a bit of family life. Um, instead of running around trying to get things that I am entitled to anyway, that the child is entitled to, because it just takes up time and it wears you out. And if he continues to go the way he's been in the last year, I really have tremendous hopes for him for the future. I, I looked at even before I came out now, yesterday evening they were out playing, and like two years ago he wouldn't have even tolerated his brother in the same room with him. And they're both out on the trampoline yesterday and they horse playing and cackling and laughing and chasing each other. And, like that just it just does something to you when you see that and when you see that kind of achievement and that's a, that kind of progress um 
his cousins come to play with him Owen and Rachel they, they just don't see him as being different now they they play they talk to him as as they do the other children and like he just he's interacting more with them he's playing more with them his speech is coming on more and I just I really really am very hopeful for him at this stage we have a hostel combined to the school the distances were so that they had a hostel for the children who came from far away but this little boy came was about four hours drive away from Cape Town the father had died in an accident just in the wild while while she was there with a month observation, I said to she said, I want to move here. I said, Don't, because your support is there, your friends and everything is there, and you've got two other children. Because you're the only parent left now. So I said, Put the child in our school's hostel. I promise you we will look after him. And he turned three on the ninth of December and she went to buy his duvet and it came in January. And then for the first month she stayed there and we but severe behavior problems and she said to me Andes, you my child is not going into institution I said well then we've got to do what we've got to do and I've got to start so we started with a behavior modification program with him and she went back and after that she came back every third weekend to stay in Cape Town be with him and go back again so he stayed with me for two years in my class and then went to another class for a year and another class for a year and it's four years down the line and he's back home and he's in his school there doing extremely well and he's mainstreamed and it was nine months before he started to say mama I sat with a smarty not knowing the diet those days and he would do anything for that smarty so I sat for an hour m m m and he had the m and the a sound already and Eventually, I got the mama. So with with Smarty, we went. He got his Smarty, and with another Smarty, we went to the phone, and he had to repeat the mama for his mother to hear on the phone. Um, like something now that has really kind of make the day or the week for me is um, today. We were just playing with Tristan on the floor with the jigsaw, and Mike's painting that he had done, and I had written his name, and he wrote it underneath himself. And he went over to it and he said, my, my. And I thought it was mine, he was saying. But we discovered then it was Mike. He was pointing to his name written. And I was going to start crying. Because <laughs> they're all the important things, aren't they? They're the great things yeah. that happen that are really... If you didn't do anything for a week or two weeks, that would just, that would just fill your heart. And I'd be easy on him for the rest of the day. <laughs> and we're all like this. We're all this great. <laughs> They only feel like they're your own, kind of, you know, yeah, and you'd be like, oh my God, everybody, he just did this, and, you know. But every day here brings something really, really good. So it does. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.